Hello everybody! Post-production Cypher here, aka Ryder. Uh, just to let you know, we're doing a bit of housekeeping before we launch straight into the next campaign, so no episode this week. But I just wanted to take this opportunity to say thank you to everybody who has contributed and continues to listen to our little show. Uh, we've just got to the end of Glitch, which was our longest campaign here on Cosmopunk, and it was predominantly fantasy D&D 5e on our Starfinder show. <clears throat> so thank you for sticking with us through that. But we did think it would be a little bit confusing if we just launched straight into Season 2, um, so what we're going to do is a little bit of a recap here. So, if you understand completely what's going on, because you're some sort of galaxy-brained connoisseur of Cosmopunk and Starfinder in general, or you haven't listened to Season 1 yet and don't want any spoilers, feel free to skip this one. It's just uh, like a, a too-long-didn't-listen sort of thing, a recap of all of the Cosmopunk history entirely. Although I will also be covering some of the unrecorded adventures that we've had in the past, so if you want a little bit of extra lore, you might want to tune in for that. Anyway, the story so far. As I mentioned, uh, we, the Cosmopunk crew, began our adventures before we started recording the show and turning it into a podcast, which is a little confusing for listeners when we start making references to unrecorded past adventures in the show, but there's always going to be a little bit of a gap between what we do live and what makes it into the narrative of the show. I think we ultimately decided that that gap would get smaller and smaller the more content we make, so bear with us. <laughs> so yeah, our first adventure was unrecorded, and that was Against the Aeon Throne. Um, we refer to this part of the story as Reach of an Empire, as we kind of only did the first part of it. All of our characters were level 2 babbies in this adventure, and it helps us to learn the basics of Starfinder and flesh out how we would mesh together as a team. Uh, this adventure was ran entirely off-book, um, so it may be similar to a lot of other parties that have played this campaign. So the crew of the Lyca 7 got word of a colony on planet Narcondus that needed liberating from the Aslanti Empire. Um, they travelled to this place, immediately got attacked by some of the hostile wildlife, and then set about dismantling the Aslanti base once they'd snuck inside. Once they'd rescued the resistance fighters trapped in the colony, uh, their leader informed the crew that there was another important member of the resistance trapped on a prison moon. Uh, the crew had their first real fight against the Aslanti, as well as some Dreyliks, which we refer to as Pickle Men. Rick and Morty was at the height of its popularity at this point, don't judge us. Anyway, uh, we rescued Sedona the Android, who invited the crew to join the Starfinder Society, a federation of peace and diplomacy within the Pact Worlds. And the crew took one look at this offer and went, nah. <laughs> this was our first development of the group, where we all collectively decided that our crew felt much more like a bunch of disenfranchised outcasts and mercenaries rather than the self-appointed good guys. Um, ultimately, we never finished against the Aeon Throne. Uh, the concept of writing homebrew campaigns just sounded much more interesting to us. And this is the point where Typhon stepped in and ran something for us called Kronos. Also unrecorded, which he really, really regrets not setting a mic up for. Um, but yeah, for this adventure, Radar goes off on his own quest, so he wouldn't have to run his character whilst also being the GM, which is something that we all took to heart when running our own homebrew stories. So Kronos saw the crew in a much more survival horror situation, where they decided to visit the tropical paradise of Ukason Lapsi for a holiday, of course. Uh, here their holiday was interrupted by a strange being that built himself a body out of sand. Uh, he called himself A1, or Owl. 
He offered the crew a job to investigate and secure a sector of space on the edge of the diaspora. Um, the crew are confused, but ultimately agree. Upon reaching the coordinates, they find the wreckage of a seemingly abandoned space station, sliced in half and hidden behind a cloaking shield. Curiosity gets the better of them, and they decide to venture on board, where they discover the remains of an Aslanti soldier crew, who inform our heroes that something on this station has escaped containment. Exploring deeper, the crew meet what the soldiers were talking about. It's a giant corrupted mass of flesh and wires, inhabited by the soul of an interdimensional demon, driven mad by thousands of years of isolation. Big mood. Anyway, his name is Logos. After a brief panic, Logos flings the crew through a portal to a desolate world of sand and shattered skyscrapers. And here they meet a seemingly younger version of Radar, and he's hunkered down inside a twisted-up battle mech. Um, there isn't much time to talk before Logos reappears through another portal and a new battle starts. Logos is beaten back, but manages to infect Radar's mech before the crew fight their way back through the portal and leave Logos and Radar behind. They eventually deduce that the place they just were was thousands of years in the past, but now they had returned to the present and were safe. Hopefully. Upon returning to Okasan Lapsi to claim their payment, uh, A1 only pays them half for not being able to secure the sector, shortly before vanishing back onto the beach. Uh, this character was the reason that V coins the phrase sand dickheads in our hydrophobia campaign, so there's a nugget of information for you. After Kronos, the next adventure that followed was technically recorded, but the quality is a bit lacklustre, and it's all baked down into one channel, and we're missing parts of it, and the amount of effort it would take to edit it all down into something listenable, uh, we decided it would be far more effort than it would be worth or get in return. It's a bit of a shame, but I think we just decided not to do anything with the footage, but we did develop a bit of a taste for doing more homebrew campaigns. So this next campaign was ran by Pan. It was one called Crash the Party. Uh, this saw us make some new characters, and take actions that would lead into Baphomet's backstory. So we made a Shiran called Himmon, an Aspraxa Corvid called Carl, an android shapeshifter named Echo, and Pinky the Yosoki, who only joins us for a few episodes, was played by Orin, who's a friend of the show. They're all given a contract by the intergalactic media conglomerate Pale Moon. They're tasked with infiltrating a giant interplanetary cruise ship owned by Mr. Fleabert Gaxley called The Party in order to assassinate a high-status celebrity target called Tiamat. Our heroes cause a major incident on board the ship, and most of it needs to be evacuated, but eventually they discover Tiamat's body, frozen in stasis, and they dispatch her mortal form. Shortly after this is done, Carl questions the motives of why their employer wanted Tiamat dead. He loses his nerve, and tries to hide a small piece of Tiamat's soul crystal inside his jacket on the way out. He would eventually use this to create a new body for Tiamat's soul in the form of an android named Baphomet. Although they would both be constantly on the run from the very same people who employed Carl to carry out the assassination. Remember this, as it will be relevant later. And then, we finally started recording things in a presentable manner, just in time for my first homebrew Starfinder campaign, Hydrophobia. Uh, in this adventure, we rejoin the original party members of Ryder, V, Baphomet, and Radar. Ryder invites some of her old Academy friends over for a party on board the Leica 7. 
And after a great night where everyone drinks far too much, uh, the crew wake up to discover Ryder and her friends are gone. Uh, they've taken their shuttle to continue the party at Slipstream Water Park on the ocean moon of Lysander, which is also owned by Fleabag Gaxley. He's rich, alright, he's got his fingers in lots of pies. Anyway, Ryder invites the crew to come and join them when they eventually wake up. Although on arrival at Lysander, the remaining crew are greeted by a desolate landscape with an alarming absence of any water. Uh, worse than that, the Lyca 7 is seemingly malfunctioning and drops out of the air when all of its engines suddenly freeze over. After a crash landing, uh, the crew venture into the twisted structures of a dead theme park where they try to discover what's going on, but they find only mutilated bodies as well as the broken remains of Ryder's shuttle. Her friends seemingly killed in the crash. They also discover that the Islanti had a presence on this moon and go to investigate further. After a few fights with the zombified remains of the Islanti soldiers being controlled by some kind of living water, the crew eventually find the remains of Ryder's friend Syntac, an android. They rescue her, and she tells the crew that Ryder has been taken deep underwater by some sort of extremely powerful entity. The crew board a submarine and venture deeper into the liquid core of the moon, hoping to find their missing crewmate. They find that Ryder has been captured by a creature named Siphonophore, a young hive mind that has the ability to manipulate the water around it. Fleabuck Gaxley built his water park and employed Siphonophore to keep the park clean and the guests happy. But then the Islanti got wind of the hive mind's powerful abilities and saw military potential in them, setting up a scientific base and running cruel experiments on the creature which caused it to lash out and destroy the park. Siphonophore retreated into the core of the moon and is now harvesting parts from leftover ships in order to build itself an escape craft. Baphomet uses her psychic abilities to calm Siphonophore and make it see reason and release Ryder in exchange for V's assistance to help the creature build a functioning spaceship and escape. Siphonophore agrees, frees Ryder, and allows the crew to leave on good terms. It allows them to repair the Lyca 7, shortly before giving the ship a tidal-assisted launch back into orbit. Siphonophore leaves shortly afterwards, in its own version of the Lyca 7, constructed entirely out of ice. And yeah, after Hydrophobia, we immediately went into Engines of Hatred, which was another homebrew campaign, jammed by Typhon. Only this one was recorded. Having finally gotten the ship back in working order after it took a beating at the water park, V wanted to take the Lyca 7 out for a test run. However, after a quick flight, another incarnation of A1 appears out of Ryder's Zen Garden and meshes together with some of the mashed potato in the kitchen into a person calling himself B2. And yes, this is just as weird to read out loud as it felt to play. <clears throat> Anyway, B2 apologises for the rough introduction the crew had with his kind, but he has an important mission for them this time. The crew is to travel to an uncharted star system called Thumia to recover a dangerous weapon from the hands of a warlord named Archon Beta. The crew reluctantly agree and start making preparations, but while this is happening, Ryder stumbles upon a hastily crafted bomb that had been strapped to one of the engines. After disarming it, the crew make their way back to the engineering platform and Outpost Z, where they originally got the repairs done, in order to try and work out if anyone has a hit called out on them. They discover a gang of Dralicks at the local bar, who don't seem to have any connection with the bomb, but are nonetheless aggressive and start a fight with the crew. After a short fight, the bar is emptied of Dralick gangers, and the minigun-toting owner of the place essentially gifts the establishment to the crew before making a hasty exit. Once that's over, they make preparations for the task to come. 
discovering that the uncharted system lies behind several hard borders that they will need to sneak inside. Once they're all back on board the Leica 7, they find a huge transport vessel bound for the Caladian Nebula and latch onto the underside of it like a lamprey, disconnected when they are just outside the target system. However, en route to their destination, the Leica 7 encounters a strange security system. First a giant interstellar minefield, and then a giant golem ship made entirely out of moving stones that opens fire on the ship, blasting it out of the stars. But Ryder just about manages to regain control before crash-landing the ship on the coastline of a nearby forest moon. This is the moon of Tur, and it's inhabited. After a terrifying encounter with the local wildlife in the form of a grazing deer, the crew encounter the denizens of this place. Humans, living with medieval technology and some simple magic. Baphomet takes this opportunity to engage with the magic, but discovers that this entire moon is actually an ancient battle station, created by some extinct beings for a forgotten conflict. Although even this powerful weapon is not what the crew are looking for, that lies in a hidden base on the sister planet to Terra, which the Prince Regent of this medieval moon shows them how to get to. Following these directions, the crew encounter the hidden base on Thumia II. Inside the base is their target, three rippling spheres, simply known as the Warhead. There is a brief panic when they're discovered stealing the device, but they manage to make it out of the base and the system and arrange a drop-off point with B2's organization. But before they can make it there, the ominous Warhead starts influencing the crew, sharing terrifying visions of its true purpose with V and Baphomet. The device is a sentient doomsday weapon, living only for annihilation and the destruction of life. Baphomet also glimpses the device being used to reduce one of the world's radar's mech has been stationed on, from a verdant paradise into a desolate, barren desert. After the crew work out what the device is for, they are left with the dilemma of handing it over to some shady organization for an unknown purpose. But ultimately they decide that what they're doing is the right thing. Still shaken up by their doubts and the traumatic experiences with the warhead, the crew make their way back to their newly acquired bar on Outpost Z. And with Engines of Hatred all wrapped up, we move on to RJ's first campaign, which was Until Proven Innocent. So while cleaning up the minigun bar, the crew are visited by a messenger drone in the form of a snake, which uh, they decided to name Bob. Uh, Bob the Snake invites the crew to meet up with a prestigious Kasatha named Iago. Iago has hired a security firm led by another Kasatha named Nesta. Oh, and we also find out that Bob the Snake is Nesta's drone, he's an engineer. Uh, Nesta's team is to take care of the prized collection of art and archaeological discoveries from across the Pact Worlds, being housed in Iago's stately mansion on the planet of Query. But he wishes to hire a second security detail uh, to act as bodyguards and double-check the activities of the first. This is where the team of mercenaries from the Cosmopunk crew come in. As V has taken the Leica 7 for another refit and repair, the rest of the crew decide to travel on board Iago's luxury yacht, but they take a rusty old shuttle that Radar acquired in his off-camera exploits during Engines of Hatred, for use once they get to Query. But no sooner have the crew set off, but Iago's space yacht gets pulled out of the drift by Shiran pirates. There's a brief skirmish before all of the pirates are either killed or captured, to be brought to justice when they arrive in Kasathan space. Upon arrival at Query, the crew were shown around Iago's penthouse, and brought down to an armoured basement to inspect the jewel of his collection, a small obelisk containing an entire galaxy frozen in stasis. 
The crew set about working with Nestor and his security team in order to protect the collection. But unbeknownst to the rest of the party, Nestor broke into Baphomet's mind while they were still on Iago's cruise ship, and has her under mind control. Nestor is working together with a notorious Kasarthan gangster known as Holmst. They plan to use Baphomet to steal the obelisk and frame the crew. With the obelisk stolen, Nestor puts his plan into action, sealing the crew out of Iago's mansion and calling the local police force, forcing our heroes to make a run for it as fugitives. With Radar's transport runabout also missing, the crew steal a car and plan to clear their names. After some digging, they find out that Nestor is involved with Holmst and travel to the gangster's mansion. It's there that Ryder manages to snap a photo of Holmst holding the galaxy in a box, caught red-handed before Holmst stuffs the obelisk into a null space cube. There's a brief tussle with Holmst's security team, before the crew scarper back to Iago's mansion, now with evidence in hand. The crew also call the cops themselves, telling them to come to the mansion immediately with a warrant for Nestor's arrest. The mansion itself is locked down. Ryder tries to sneak inside to disable the security systems, but is confronted by Bob the Snake. But this time, he's got fangs. Ryder narrowly escapes back outside, but just before Holmst arrives and hurries to prepare an evacuation for himself, Nestor, and the prized obelisk. The crew fight their way inside the mansion and finally manage to confront Nestor and Holmst and some of his armed goons. Meanwhile, the police arrive and try to break into the lockdown mansion. Above, a Kasarthan ship arrives and Bob manages to sneak the obelisk on board and the ship manages to get away just before the police can shoot it down. When the dust settles after the battle, Bob the Snake, Holmst, and his gangsters are dead. Nestor is arrested, and the Lyca 7 crew clear their names with the local police force. But Iago's prized obelisk is gone, taken by a ship with the mysterious symbol of a white ladder on its tail fin. After an interview with the police, the crew are taken to see Nestor, who seems to remain smug, even though he's behind bars. Both he and the crew realize that there is no true justice for the wealthy and powerful, and Nestor will be out of prison to carry on with his plans very quickly. But just as the crew are about to leave, Baphomet revisits Nestor. She is still full of anger after he took control of her mind and used her as an accessory to his crimes. So she decides to punish him on her own terms. She uses her magic to imprison Nestor even further, trapping him in a psychic loop of anguish that will eventually turn his mind into sludge. The White Ladder organization still remains a mystery, but whatever future dealings Nesta had with them can no longer come to fruition, and justice is served. Not realizing what Baphomet has done, the rest of the crew receive their payment and vow to Iago to retrieve his obelisk once they have a strategy in place. They then return to Outpost Z to check out the improvements V has made to the Lyca 7. And then we moved on to our next campaign, Chemical Divinity. Uh, this one was a great time for us, as it was the first campaign since we began our adventures that we all got to do a campaign as a four. So we'd once again like to thank Zuki for running this one for us. You did a stellar job, dude, and we'll definitely be doing guest gems again at some point. So, Chemical Divinity begins with Ryder getting a message from one of her old Academy buddies called Xavier, uh, with a tip about a possible job offer. She takes the crew to meet up with Xavier, and he explains that there is a reporter named Toffee on planet Triaxis, who is looking for help with an undercover investigation. The crew pack up their kit and make their way to the frozen world of Triaxis and the city of Zoe. On their way into landing, they see a pod of space whales that seem to be in distress, but they don't pay them too much attention at first. 
When they finally land, they encounter a local street gang, who challenges them to a hoverbike race in the city. But first, mission stuff. Uh, they meet up with Toffee, who is an Astrozoan shapeshifter. She informs the crew that there is a seedy underground drug trafficking operation happening on the other side of the city, involving various dragon families that operate on Triaxis. She's been trying to expose the operation, but she needs help in order to recover evidence of the drug, as well as its origins. Oh, and Radar becomes enamoured with a Veskian dancer known as Celeste. More on that story later. Toffee organises a fake drugs deal with one of the local gangs at a drive-in cinema on the outskirts of the city. Here, the crew disguise themselves as gang members and meet up with the crooks in order to secure a sample of the drug known as Rainbow. However, there is what will become a fairly commonplace altercation between the Cosmopunk crew and the people they are trying to fool, and a massive horrible bloody gunfight breaks out at the cinema. Our heroes escape, but no sooner are they free from the eyes of the cops, and the gangsters, but they are confronted by a giant spherical kill droid calling itself Sluggo. The crew find out that this guy is basically a bounty hunter come Twitch streamer, and is televising a hit on the Cosmopunk crew. They manage to dispatch the droid and escape with a sample of the rainbow drug, and get it to one of Toffee's friends, who can analyse the compound and work out where it was produced. And while that's happening, the crew take a break, and they take part in the hoverbike race that the street gang challenged them to earlier. Because why not? Whee! Anyway, back on mission. Toffee's informant tells the crew that the drug was produced in a laboratory deep inside the dragon-controlled territories on the far side of Triaxis. They'll need to cross borders into Dretchnell and infiltrate the Emerald Eyes facility. Once they're over the border, the crew almost immediately discover that a terrible incident has occurred within the facility, deep underground. It doesn't take much to distract the security team and convince them that the Cosmopunk crew are here to help. Spoilers, they don't help, they just make everything worse. The inside of the facility has been completely ruined after some sort of containment breach. The crew are confronted with some of the members of the science team, infected with the rainbow drug. And very soon, Ryder and V become infected too. With two members of the party hallucinating, the crew press deeper into the facility, trying to gather as much damning evidence as possible for Toffee's report. Luckily, the facility's AI system, Jade, is also on the fritz. She is convinced to help the crew navigate through the labyrinthian rooms and corridors of this place. In the lower levels of the facility, the crew find that Emerald Eyes was experimenting on living test subjects. One of them is an uplifted bear by the name of Alejandro. By chance, this is someone V used to work with back when they built spaceships at Uasa Drive Yards. The crew rescue Al and pursue down to the lowest depths of the facility, where they discover the true source of Rainbow. This facility is extracting blood from a baby space whale and turning it into a hallucinogenic drug. One of the test subjects turned out to be an incredibly powerful member of the Hive, a grotesque and evil creature by the name of Rathalor. He broke free and wrought havoc within the facility before planning his escape. With the effects of the drug now starting to wear off, the crew can finally make their plans to escape with all of the evidence, as well as rescuing Alejandro and the AI Jade from their imprisonment. But how to do it without setting the monster Rathalor loose on the city above? Well, by activating the base's self-destruct system, of course. The crew pile out of the facility with Al and Jade in tow, shortly before burying Rathalor alive and detonating the Emerald Ice facility underneath him. Don't worry, he was an asshole. With photographic evidence in hand, two witnesses and all of the proof they need to crack this case wide open, the crew start making their way back to Toffee so she can finish writing her report. But there's a problem. 
It turns out that Sluggo survived and is now demanding a rematch. He's been watching the crew closely and has taken Radar's friend Celeste and another baby space whale hostage on an abandoned oil tanker. Quickly making plans, Radar, V and Baff agree to battle Sluggo, while Ryder sneaks in and rescues Celeste. After one final battle, Sluggo is defeated, but still manages to escape. The baby space whale is freed and rejoins its family in the skies, leaving one hell of a mess for the Triaxian authorities to clean up. Whew. Yeah, that was one heck of a story. Lots of twists and turns there. Thank you so much to Urban Dragon for writing that one for us, and another big thanks to Zuki for running it. And last but not least, we move on to our most recent campaign of Glitch, which was both written and ran by our good friend Fringe. This was another special one for us, because not only did it let us play as a 4 again, but we wanted to expand upon the rather silly question of what would it look like if our Starfinder characters were playing D&D? And this was what we ended up with in Glitch. It was a story where the crew is once again invited to a prestigious event, this time by none other than Fleabert Gaxley on his new ship, The Party Mark II. We really need to stop doing business with this guy. But yeah, he has connections with Baphomet, and he wishes to capitalize on her stardom by having her promote a new video game he is developing. It's a fully immersive experience based on gaming technology that existed before The Gap, which is the apocalypse that wiped out all of the prehistory in the Starfinder universe. Baphomet is unsure of this, but the rest of the crew convince her that it'll be fun, and eventually she agrees to participate, in exchange for all of the information Gaxley has on the Pale Moon organization. And if you'll remember back to Crash the Party, Pale Moon are the organization that ordered a hit on the pop star Tiamat in Baphomet's past life. She's looking for answers, and she thinks Gaxley may be the man to get them from. Regardless, the crew are shown the game's development studio and introduced to the lead developer, an Aspraxa named Dr. Lestrange. Oh, and V becomes enamored with a Veskian bodyguard named Crunch. More on that story later. Dr. Lestrange shows the crew how to log into the game, and at this point, our Starfinder show became D&D 5e. Oh boy. So the crew set about creating some fantasy characters to act as avatars for themselves within the boundaries of the adventure game. V becomes Nyar, Ryder becomes Kralnak, Baphomet becomes Pandora, and Radar becomes Felix. Uh, they meet up with a character in the game known as Dave, with two A's, it's an acronym for Digital Adaptive Archive Virtual Experience. Shut up, it's very clever. Dave helps the party adapt into their new bodies and initially assist them. After completing their first in-game quest, the party suddenly experience their first glitch. The world around them freezes up, and a figure wearing modern clothing appears, before delivering them a mysterious coin. Later on, the party attempts to learn more about the backstory of the fantasy world, and a mythical in-game weapon known as the Glaive. Kroll interacts with the coin from earlier, trying to see what it does. This freezes the game world again, and Dave appears, scolding the party, rather ominously before fixing the game, right before their eyes. The party learn about a camp on the outskirts of the city which has been under siege by hordes of the undead. This must be the main quest. The party volunteer to assist and help defend the camp, with a wizard named Damien who offers to guide the party into the forest. After a quick bite to eat in-game, and in the real world, the crew need to keep themselves fed and watered outside of the adventure game as well, they start making the long, spaceshipless trek towards Camp Hummingbird on foot. And you can complain about sci-fi and your D&D all you want, lightspeed travel just makes the narrative much slicker, okay, Starfinder is better. Fight me. Anyway, 
En route to Camp Hummingbird, the party start encountering more strange characters, as well as a riddling jester who calls himself Virgil. Virgil assists the party by speeding up their travels, but along the way, the party are just about to settle down for the night when they see a woman running for her life through the woods, being chased by a formless shadow monster. They are unable to rescue her before she is engulfed, leaving no more behind than a scrap of clothing. A piece of starship uniform. Were there other people in this game too? After the party finally arrive at the camp, they meet up with more in-game characters. A professor, who the wizard Damien is the apprentice of, an elven sorcerer named Zul, and the captain of the guards, Catherine Mayor. She is especially valuable in the fight against the undead, as the zombies don't seem to react to her presence. Later that night, the game freezes again and Dave reappears, telling the party that he knows Virgil helped them cheat in order to skip ahead to reach the camp. He decides to punish the party by sealing them in-game and cutting them off from the outside world. Unable to wake up or communicate with Doctor Lestrange, the party are now trapped within their fantasy avatars. And you would not believe the amount of if you die in the game, you die for real jokes we had to edit out from this point on. Anyway, next morning the party awaken to find that the camp is under siege. Nya finds the professor, murdered, and Damien mortally wounded inside one of the nearby tents. The wizard tells Nya that Zul has betrayed the camp and Mayor has gone hunting for him. The party join the hunt and go searching for Catherine, but on the way they encounter strange visions of their real-life pasts. Eventually they find Captain Mayor, but just afterwards the party encounters another vision. This time they see something none of them recognize, a glitching vision of a colony ship mercilessly harvesting life from a planet and killing the family of a farmer. Enraged, the farmer unleashes the full force of his alien abilities on board the colony ship, breaking on board and taking his revenge on the crew, as well as the colonists who were frozen in stasis, all playing the very same game that our party are currently trapped within. It's at this point that the party learned that all of the non-player characters within this game could very well be the souls of the real people from thousands of years ago, all trapped and recycled into various characters throughout this world as the program continues. Virgil and the captain of the colony ship are trying to stop the entity known as Dave, a corrupted monster that was created when the farmer collided with the inner workings of the adventure game. But it seems Dave has now allied with the power-hungry Zool, and Virgil and the captain need the party's help to stop him. In true fantasy game style, the party learn that Captain Mayor is the Chosen One. Only when she has been reunited with the Glaive of Power can this world be spared, or brought to an end. The Glaive itself lies within a giant pyramid in the center of the city in the forest, which just so happens to be filled to the brim with zombies. Battling their way through the hordes, the party eventually make it inside the pyramid and confront Dave and Zul. Dave plans to take the places of the crew in the real world and continue his vengeance on those who murdered his family, while Zul wishes to escape from his digital prison. There is an epic battle where Dave turns into a giant sludge monster before Felix eventually manages to bumble his way into the realm of kings and secure the mythical glaive. After one last battle with Zul and Dave's final form, Catherine and Virgil are able to use the glaive to seal Dave away and regain control of the digital world. They instruct the party to destroy Dave's core once they are back in the real world, and their realm will once again be at peace, and all of the souls trapped inside the game will finally be laid to rest. The party say one last goodbye before they are catapulted back into reality. 
Now back in their real bodies, the crew immediately set to work ensuring Dave's central processing unit is destroyed, and Fleabit Gaxley knows the full extent of the suffering his little game development project has caused. However, Gaxley keeps his word and allows Baphomet to have all of the information he has on Pale Moon. Baphomet learns that her father and creator Carl has been forced into servitude for his crimes, but him and the Shirin has reached out to Baphomet and needs her help to free him. Baphomet is deeply shaken by this knowledge. How could the people who helped her rise to stardom be capable of such evil? After a brief talk with Ryder, Baphomet slips away in the night to confront the demons of her past. And with that, Season 1 draws to a close. And as some of you may already be aware, Baphomet won't be around for the first few campaigns of Season 2, but don't worry if she's your favourite character, she will return later on. In the meantime, Pan plays a bunch of other awesome characters on shows like Hexgrid Heroes, Emergency Power Podcast, Horizons Unknown, Spectre in the Fog. They're all great. Go check them out too. But in the meantime, Cosmopunk will be running Season 2, and it'll last till about this time next year, in 2023. We've got a bunch more cool adventures lined up for you to listen to, and we really hope that you'll stick around. So, they are going to begin in two weeks' time with our new campaign, Theatre of the Mind, ran by Typhon. But that about wraps everything up here. I am Cypher, I am incredibly tired, and I'm going to get some more whiskey. So, on one final note, I will hand over the floor to Fringe, who has a special message for everyone. Hello, everybody. Fringe here. I want to thank you all for listening. Glitch is currently the longest-running campaign in Cosmopunk as of this recording and my first public campaign on a podcast. I couldn't have done it without the support of the amazing cast here on Cosmopunk. They have gone above and beyond in making this campaign to be something more than I could ever dream of with their amazing role-playing and skills at editing. They have put all this together into something magical. To RJ, Cypher, Pan, and Ty, I thank you all for inviting me to your table. It has been a pleasure to play with you. And to the audience... Thank you for your support and feedback. It has helped me grow as a dungeon master moving forward. I look forward to the day when I can come back to the table again. It has been fun, and I do hope either come back as a player or as a dungeon master once again for Cosmopunk. And so, this is Fringe signing out. And remember, shoot straight and roll high. <laughs>